Well, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, I'll be reading from there in just a minute. Just a quick note. Uh, we're a little late, a little long in the service already. I'm sure you're aware of that. Apologize for that. We've had a lot to put in. I will do what I can to tighten things up up here. But I also just wanted to acknowledge that, maybe give us a chance to just sort of take a deep breath. The Lord has us here, and it is good to be with God's people and to worship Him together. Having said that, as I turn here to 1 Kings, a reminder that, that we are looking at the life of Elijah, Elijah and Elisha, sort of a post-Easter service in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. And we uh, looked at chapter 17 last week, and we'll do a little bit of review of that in the sermon, but... Um, we're really looking at the idea of, of what it means for God to give his people grace to persevere. And as we all also be reminded in this service, uh, the audience that this book was written to wasn't to the actual people in the northern kingdom under King Ahab, and it wasn't to the people in the southern kingdom. It was to those who would be exiled to Babylon uh, after 586 AD, uh, wondering if Babylon is king, if Babylon is, is really God, if their gods are the true God, or is Yahweh the true God? And I think it's helpful for us to remember that as I read the text here to wonder, as we will look at, what would this story say to them, those in exile under the authority of a foreign pagan ruler, wondering whose God is real? With that, let me give our attention to the reading of a God's word, and I will uh, edit a little bit here, uh, but we will be taking most of this chapter. Beginning in verse 1 and then moving to verse 16. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, for you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table." So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls then be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal, 
from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would uh, contain two steps of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things that your word, at, done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to him, to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Verse 45, and in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would do a miracle and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts. That you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. And that you would change us. Would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, I wanted to start out this morning with a question. What is it that gets you to say that you are God? What is it that gets you to say to God or whatever it is your God is, you are God? And we can talk about the things that draw our attention to God. We can talk about the things that we favor. For some of us, it's power. It's, it's really seeing things in the Bible like God speak creation into existence and knowing that there is a creator God. Perhaps it's seeing God uh, raise dead things to life. And we see that when Jesus raises Lazarus, right? Things of power. 
For others, though, we may be drawn more towards justice, the fairness of God. We like law. It makes sense to us. And we understand that, that, that it's, you know, it's pretty simple. Here's the law. Do it. If you don't do it, bad things happen. And so when we come across passages, maybe in 2 Samuel 6 with Uzzah, when he reaches out to grab the ark and touches it so it doesn't fall in the mud and God strikes him dead, we have no problem with passages like that. It's pretty clear. God said, don't carry the ark like this. You didn't listen to him. Now you're dead. So be it. Some of us, that really is what calls us to, to say, you are God. It's justice. It's fairness. It's his law. But what we often say as well is while those things are true, all of those things are true about God, there's, there's actually something about those two things that, that, that might draw us to God, that might say you're God, but it's not the thing that changes our hearts. What changes our hearts is love, unconditional love. And what unconditional love looks like in the Bible is what we call grace. And I want to submit to you this morning that what, what actually changes your heart today is the same thing that will change the heart of Israel in this passage, is grace. And as we talk about idols and we talk about the things that, that, that our heart is drawn towards, as we look at idols in this passage, what grace wants to do is it wants to take our heart and it wants to draw it away from those things. And it wants us to look at Jesus, right? the ultimate picture of grace in our lives so that we might be able to see something that is more beautiful and more believable than anything our hearts would desire or anything that would bid for our heart's affection so that we would change, so that, as the text says, our hearts would be drawn back to the Lord. And I want us to see that in this passage this morning. However familiar it is, I want us to see how it is grace that causes our hearts to return. And I have four things, and they're not what you think, but they're four things. Uh, I want us to just look at the setting at Carmel or why the conflict at Carmel, why it needed to happen. I want us to look at, as we go through the passage, who the conflict is directed towards. It's really important. Second, I want us to see, or third, I want us to see how the conflict exposes Baal. And then really more for application, I want to see how the conflict turns Israel's heart back. Okay, so that's a lot. The setting, who the conflict is directed towards, how the conflict exposes Baal, and then how the conflict turns Israel back. So let's take that first one, and I will move fairly quickly through these first two points. Let's look at the setting or, or why the conflict that Carmel needed to happen. What's so important to this story that is, is very perhaps familiar to us if we've grown up in the church is really beginning there in verse 1 when the Lord comes to Elijah in the third year of the drought and says, Go and show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. This is the promise of the Lord to Elijah. And as we saw last week, Right? God is the one who has actually brought this drought because of the idolatry of Israel in the northern kingdom. Primarily focused on the king who of all people was the representative of God's people and should be the one who is uh, reflecting what it means to be faithful and follow the Lord. But instead, what we read and heard, and we'll see more next week, is King Ahab has decided to break several commands of the Lord, which are what... And what that really is, is his covenant that he's made with them. And he has gone to other nations. And he has been promised a bride from a different nation. 
And he has taken on that bride's gods and worship patterns. And I I mentioned last week, it's not that Ahab leaves Israel and takes his convictions elsewhere, which probably would have been better off, I guess, I don't know, but rather brings in his new bride who tears down the altars of Yahweh to put up all of her altars of Baal. And as I said last week, you don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to know that that is bad. <laughs> There's something wrong here. And so what, going back to the terms of the covenant that we find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, one of those things is drought. That God would, would bring a drought upon the land, right? That, that, that would signify his presence, but also that something is wrong, that the relationship is not right. And that with repentance and bringing back themselves, bringing their hearts back to the terms of the covenant, then the, the drought would be eased and rain would calm. And that's, that's what's brought us to this point. But now in, in verse 1, what we're reading is that God's going to do this. He's going to end this drought on his own terms and for his own purposes. And this will begin with Elijah the prophet returning to Israel to announce what the Lord has said. I didn't mention this last week, but this is important. Um, you know, the arrival of, of Elijah uh, has several, several significances for us. Uh, one I'll mention. Uh, last week I mentioned that, you know, he showed up to King Ahab and he told King Ahab who he was and that there's going to be a drought, and then he left. And we talked about how strange that was, and that if you did that this, this afternoon in the store or uh, whatever, that, you know, people would probably think you're crazy and I wouldn't blame them. I said he left because he maybe perhaps he's afraid of, of King Ahab and, and just doesn't you know, want to deal with the consequences there and God's protecting him. And some of that might be true. But what's more important is, is the physical representation of God's prophet that to leave signified God's word leaving the land, as it were. The prophet leaving signified God's promise and blessing upon the land until the covenant terms were met. Likewise... His prophet returning, visually speaking, seeing Elijah coming up over the the horizon was time for rejoicing. God had returned because apparently the terms of the covenant had been met. Apparently repentance had had come to bear. So God would, would send his prophet back often to be that physical representation. And I say that because we need to understand that as we begin verse 1, Elijah's coming back, which presupposes that something, ha- some, something has been done in order for the terms of the covenant to be met, in order for the, uh, the idolatry and the worship of Ahab to be repented of. And that's what we assume as we enter verse 1. And before, though, before God turns the water back on, as he promises to do there in verse 1, there are some things that he chooses to pay attention to for the sake of his people. And this has everything to do with the conflict at Mount Carmel and everything to do with Baal that the king of Israel currently is worshiping and much of Israel themselves. And so who is that? Again, we're kind of dealing with setting here. A lot of background stuff that's important for this story. Who is Baal? What was Baal? Baal was, and this is no joke, the storm god. Okay? God of the storm. That is what Baal was called. Uh, Oftentimes referred to as the the fertility god. So when there was no rain and you worship Baal, it was because Baal was mad and he needed to be worshiped. When rain came, it was the blessing to the land. 
with rain, crops, and life in general. And so Baal was also known as the god of life and fertility as well. While we are not surprised that this is how pagans lived, we are surprised when we read that this is how Israel is living, the king of Israel nonetheless. And when we look at verse 17 and we see the dialogue between Ahab and Elijah, we read this, that Ahab says to Elijah, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And of course, Elijah goes on to say, me, it's not me, it's you and your father's household that we looked at last week. It's the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are now in the land. And so at first, when we hear this response from Ahab, we kind of think, is he joking? Is he joking when he says, Elijah, you troubler of Israel, but but he's not. And Ahab thinks that it's Elijah who has actually angered Baal and thus caused this drought. That's how deep, that's how sick the hearts of Israel are. After all, it's Baal who is the storm god. It's Baal who is the one who is in charge of bringing rain, or if there is doubt, he has caused it, which also means that if God were to simply bring the rain, there's no reason to think that this was from him. Everyone would assume it was Baal. God of the storm, who finally, after three years, relented, brought the rain, which makes this whole account perhaps maybe more unique than we initially thought, in the sense that God never has to prove himself to anyone. Yet, here, he chooses to do so. But this is where we have to zoom in. He chooses to do it, not because Baal is somehow more powerful or because Baal is actually a threat to him, It's not. He chooses to do it because of the power that Baal, the illusion of the idol itself, what it has over his people. And that's really all an idol is, right? It's an illusion of power that grabs our hearts. I'll illustrate this here for briefly. Um, Some of you all know this machine that I'm talking about. It's one of those machines where it kind of has these two drawers that do this. And usually on top are a bunch of quarters. So these drawers kind of push these quarters and move, move the, just, you know, you can blink if you know what I'm talking about. If you, right? Sometimes these show up in sketchy places, I get it. Um, but it's kind of a fun gimmick. It's, you know, you put the quarter in the machine and it, and it drops and then it pushes out and hopefully connects with other quarters that falls down. And then that drawer pushes. And if you're lucky, right, it pushes more quarters over the edge. Well, there's a restaurant in Dayton, Tennessee, where my family lives, that we may or may not like to go to. And there's a machine in the corner of that restaurant that we may or may not like to go look at from time to time. And, uh, you know, as it pertains to my kids, uh, there's a fascination with it. Uh, It might as well just be that arm grabber machine, right? That just, we can get all the things. And as we look... (laughs) As we go and we experience this restaurant, as we, as we go and, and just sort of wait for our food, sometimes it's like, okay, dad or grandpa, whatever, here's some quarters, uh, eat your heart out. But surprisingly, what always happens is, is kids keep returning for more quarters, asking for more quarters. And, and then, you know, this is the time and this is the place. And then, you know, there can be argument about where the quarter is supposed to be placed. But this is the time when all of this stuff is going to come like a, like a tsunami wave, just just you know, coming over the edge and I will be rich and I will have more money than my sisters. Um, 
All that ends up happening is dad ends up broke. But it's an illusion, right? It's an illusion. It is the promise that, 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 that this is just right here in our grasp, but really what it is is it says that if I can get these things, then whatever it is that, I'm, that my heart's desiring, like I can, I can, this will satisfy it. Contentment, contentment. But all it is is an illusion. You're not getting all that. And even if you do, it's not bringing you what you think it's going to bring you. And that's the illusion. Baal is an illusion. And like any idol, like any illusion, it claims to be able to give us things that our hearts want, but it can't. Why? You're smart people, because it's not real. But our hearts are easily deceived, Scripture tells us. And so we put more quarters in the machine, as it were, and this is what Baal is for Israel. And they are sure He has the power to give them what they want and God has to address them. He has to address their hearts, not Baal. I could go kick that machine over in the restaurant. It wouldn't fix the problem. So I labor here to point out, and we'll see this more in a moment, this is what the focus, when we talk about the setting and why this has to happen, this has very little to do with pagans. Very little to do with Baal and everything to do with God's people and their hearts. In one sense, God is going along, you might say, with the illusion of Baal for the sake of his people so that in setting his power next to Baal's, Israel might see Baal for what it is and return to God. And doesn't he in his grace and his mercy do that to us? When our hearts get caught up in the things that we prayed over with the confession of sin, he sets his power next to ours. And we'll see that in a second, but he sets his power, sets his power next to ours in order to show us what's real. And this is this setting. This is why the conflict of Carmel needs to happen. It's a very rare thing actually. And this now moves into deeper what we just got on talking about who then is the conflict towards. And I already said it, it's Israel, it's God's people. It's not pagan worshipers, although God deals with them. The focus here is on God's people and we see it in two ways. First, in Elijah's words there in verse 20 to 21, where he says, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? And then second, we see it in Elijah's prayer to God in verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you what have turned their hearts back. When Elijah says, how long will you, Israel, go limping between two different opinions? He is saying, how long will you ride the fence? How long will you play both sides? How long will you waver? To which they respond with nothing. You notice that in verse 21, perhaps one of the most pregnant verses of the entire episode, nothing. The people, the leaders of Israel, they don't know what to do. They are lost. But it's why this whole conflict that Carmel is directed at them and not the Baal prophets. It's God's own people who should be following him, him alone, but instead are serving 
two masters. Just in preparation for this week, one of the commentaries I read um, quoted Marilyn Monroe, of all people, when asked uh, way back in the, in the day, she was asked if she believed in God. And some of y'all might be familiar to her answer. She said, I just believe in everything a little bit. To which the commentary said, isn't this the modern day Monroe doctrine? That we live in an age where it is good, nay, it is virtuous to believe in a little of everything. To believe there is only one God, right? And thus one truth and one way to heaven, right? That's inclusive, that's short-sighted and probably bigoted. It's not virtuous. What's virtuous today is to be open-minded about all truths by believing in everything a little bit. But the Bible doesn't see it that way because if God exists, and this is where our rational minds have to tend to the text, if, if, if God exists, then he alone should be worshiped. No question. But as I said, it's one thing for pagans in the Bible to not believe and, and a completely other thing for the people of God to go their own way. And this is exactly what Elijah is confronting Israel about. And in his words, how long will you go wavering between two opinions? We also hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 6. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. And that's the real challenge here, right? It's not God and Baal. As we're going to see in a second, that is easy. But it's God and the hearts of his people. God is entering this contest not to put the pagans in their place or to give these godless heathens what they deserve, but to confront Israel and their king and their hearts, which are far from God at this point. Notice the number of times, if you go back through that text, how often Elijah speaks to the people, to Israel. All to say, chapter 18 is not about what God does to pagan nations who worship other gods, although there is something for that. Chapter 18 is about the links God will go to get the hearts of his people back. And that's what Elijah is saying to Israel, and thus who the conflict at Carmel is directed. And he's saying the same thing to us this morning. Israel, you cannot go on serving God and Baal. And if God, or if Baal is God, then follow him. If not, stop wasting your time. Right, America, right, pick the nation, pick whoever you want to identify with, you cannot serve God and fill in the blank. You cannot serve God and your money. You cannot serve God and your comfort. You cannot serve God and the pleasures of this world and family and your kids and grandkids. You have to pick one. And the interesting thing about this is, is God actually propositions us, if it's your wealth, if, if your wealth is God, then by all means, follow it. Right? If your kids is where uh, you know, all, of, all of life's worth is found for you, then put everything in that basket. But if not, if not, then we've got to go to Mount Carmel as well. If not, stop wasting your time. This is who the conflict at Carmel is directed towards. Again, it is not about the pagan worshipers of Baal. For the sake of time, 
Let's go on to that third one, how the conflict exposes the illusion then of Baal and how the conflict will expose our own hearts as well. And this gets to, in many ways, what we would call the, you know, this, this is the sexy part of the story. This is the part that we, we, we remember, verses 22 to 39. I'll go through it briefly here for time. But I want you to notice a few things. First, what stands out initially as Elijah sets the terms of the, of the conflict, the terms of the challenge, and then as Baal's prophets go, and then as Elijah goes, what stands out initially is the advantages that Baal is given. Don't overlook that. First, location. Right? We gotta remember where we are. Mount Carmel on the Mediterranean would be Phoenician region, which is where Baal originated. If we're playing football or we're playing some sport, this is home court advantage, all right? Second, Elijah is outnumbered by the prophets. We read that several times. And how many is he outnumbered? 450 to 1. 450 to 1. And that may not matter much to us, but it certainly would matter to the people in this day and age. Why? Because numbers mattered. And the more people you had to cry out, as we'll see here in a second, the better chances you had of awakening the gods or getting the gods' attention to do what you wanted. Nobody, nobody would be betting on Elijah at this point. Next, Elijah lets the Baal prophets take first pick, at which bowl will be theirs for the concert, for the contest. Thus, no funny business or rigging the system. Lastly, the whole challenge is centered around fire, which would be caused by lightning or a storm, okay? Home field advantage, 450 prophets, right? First pick of the bowl, fire, which Baal is said to ride, and then to top it all off, Elijah is what? He's going to douse his altar with water. It's comical. And that's the point. This is asking Julia Child, you know, one of America's greatest chefs, could you go and make a peanut butter sandwich? To bail. It's a home run. So the prophets start chanting. They start calling the name of Baal. And we might laugh at some of this stuff, but we do it too, and we can talk about that later. But this is religious zeal. And is actually the, the cutting and, and the bleeding was actually a way for you to express your loyalty and the extent that you would go to prove to your God that you meant business. And we do that. But that's what they're doing. But we get to verse 29, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Now it's Elijah's turn. First we read that Elijah has to repair the altar of the Lord, which is a sobering detail in the story. It had been uh, torn down. Elijah then takes 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. This is significant. Because at this time, Israel is divided with 10 nations to the north and two to the south. Yet what God is, is, is saying here is that, no, 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 they are still one. Because that's who my promises are to and through. And so wherever they may be in the process, God is reminding uh, them of his covenant to Israel. And in Elijah's actions, Elijah's actions, it's not so much that Israel is remembering this by Elijah making the altar with 12 stones, but God himself is remembering this. Remember who's reading this count. After the altar is set, the bowl cut, the wood placed on the altar, Elijah instructs the people to bring forth the water, ensuring that whatever is about to happen was by the Lord, 
the one true God and no one else. And, and this point, at this point, it was now time for Elijah to call in the name of the Lord. And we hear this wonderful prayer beginning in verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Where the prophets of Baal shouted and cut themselves, Elijah, Elijah prays. No need for dramatic gestures here or misplaced zeal, a simple, humble prayer that calls on the name of the Lord, asks for his glory to be made known so that Israel may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back is all that it needs. For Elijah, the scene is not about him. It's not about him or making himself look good. It's not even about winning the contest here or the conflict at Carmel. It's about God's name being great. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed and the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And just like that, the conflict is over. The challenge is over. It's not even close nor do we expect it to be. And if we remember, right, this whole account was not about fire or winning some contest, right? It's about rain. And that's exactly how this closes, going back to verse 45, where the rain falls from more prayer from Elijah. Yahweh is vindicated. And seen. So we've seen why the conflict Carmel needed to happen. We saw who the conflict is directed towards and we saw how the conflict exposes Baal, the illusion of Baal, that he is not real. How then does the conflict turn Israel's heart back? And this will be application for us. And where I wanna start is, is by asking, how would this story be heard by Israel? This Israel. What impact would it have of those who actually witnessed it? Because here's the thing. And noted this last week, Elijah and Elisha were prophets in the northern kingdom, right? And while chapter 18 is a rather high note and ends on a high note, the lasting effect it would have on King Ahab and the northern kingdom is minimal. And we will see that next week. We will see that, next, that, 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 that in the coming chapters, right, from a historical perspective, what, what I would consider next to Israel being rescued across the Red Sea, right? The Exodus account, I would say this is probably the next thing that demonstrates God's power and his justice and, 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 and his acts of redemption. What effect does it have? The Northern Kingdom is still going to fall. 722. 586, the Southern Kingdom is still going to fall. And I don't say this to say that it didn't have any effect, right? It, I'm sure it stirred and it strengthened the hearts and the great faith of some of those who were there, the, the remnant that we know existed. But this is where we have to go back to its original audience that I asked you to think about before we read the text. How would they understand this? How would they hear this as those exiled in a foreign land 
And it's here that we see the power of this passage coming to a people desperately wanting to know which God is real. If we are out of the land, if we, knowing that this is God's doing, by the way, God brought judgment on Israel through Babylon, sent them out, but it still doesn't mean that God doesn't condescend to his people, doesn't meet their needs where they are. Living under a different king, living in a foreign place would simply say that maybe the king, maybe the gods of Babylon are the real God. Maybe this is the real power. Maybe Yahweh has forgotten us. And if there's anything that this story would say to them, would say, no, 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 no. Let me bring you back to 1 Kings 18. Let me bring you back to Baal. Same story, same thing, different characters. And what he's telling his people is that whatever you might think, being in Babylon, whatever you might think about who is the real God, about whose kings are better, Babylon has as much chance against Yahweh, the one true God, as Baal did. Do not fear, for though you are a conquered people, at my hand, by the way, I am not conquered, and I have not forgotten you. Would you turn your hearts back to me? Would you stop serving to masters? And return to the covenant that I made with you. A covenant that says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is what it would say. See, and there's something there for us too this morning, right? Where do you need to hear that? Where do you need to even just uh, be reminded of the power of the one true God, that there isn't another God that rivals him, nor is there a nation that rivals him? that he is sovereign over all things, regardless of what is happening in the moment for you. Where do you need to hear that? Where is that rest for you? Where do you need to be reminded? And where does that expose the other masters that we pursue, that our hearts go after, that we might repent and come back to the one true God? And see, that can be encouraging for you. It can even be inspirational, but I'm gonna argue it cannot be transformational because you haven't met grace yet. And what does grace do? That's the thing that changes our hearts. And this is how God changes the hearts of Israel, thus changes the hearts of ourselves. It is grace. And where do we see this in the passage? It's God's willingness to act outside of Israel, outside of their own ability, outside of their own willingness to be faithful in order to what? Fulfill his promises. And where do we see that this morning? Just big picture in this story, right? Taking the story as it is, the story is a home run story. God comes to confront the big bad king, right? His own king who who is in the midst of, of, of awful idolatry. He sends his prophet Elijah to tell him. He summons the king and the prophets to a contest at Mount Carmel where he just obliterates the competition. Epic display of lightning and fire. Yahweh destroys Baal and the good guys go home to celebrate. What more is there to say? If we go back to verse one and the way this whole account starts with the word of the Lord coming to Elijah in the third year of the drought saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. It's actually here that we should be scratching our heads. 
Why is blessing in the form of rain and the return of God's prophet coming before the repentance of Ahab and Israel? Why is the promise of rain coming before Israel gets their act together and returns to covenantal faithfulness? See, the formula in the Old Testament, typically speaking, is God rescues his people. He gives them their, his law. They obey the law. Blessings come. And in the uh, act of disobedience, right, there's repentance. There's, there's sacrifices to be made for that, to atone for that sin in order to make good the terms of the covenant that blessings may flow. But here there's none of that. King Ahab has not repented. The land is full of pagan altars. Elijah has to build an altar to Yahweh because it's been torn down. There is but one prophet left, yet in the third year of the drought, God says, I'll bring the rain. I'll restore my people. In other words, my promises are no longer dependent upon Israel's obedience, and that is something altogether different, altogether lovely, and altogether powerful. It's grace. And grace in the end is what, what? It's what changes us. Grace is what changes us to decide between what? Two masters. Because grace is the ultimate power that says you are God. Grace is why God acts outside of Israel's own ability and their own willingness to be faithful in order to fulfill his promises. And the good news for us this morning is Mount Carmel will not be the last time or the last place that we see this epic display of power and lightning and storm that, re that returns the hearts of God's people. Carmel, in one sense, only prepares the way for another conflict, another contest, as it were, that's on Calvary, where the cross of Jesus will what? Return hearts to God. Where the ultimate burnt offering for sin will occur so that atonement for sin could be made and the covenant fulfilled, thus justice being satisfied that God may dwell then forever with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And in the resurrection of Jesus, as we're calling this a post-Easter service, God has vindicated himself just as he did when he brought the rain in verse 46 of 18. Once again saying, I am God. I am God. And that's what he's saying to you this morning. In Jesus Christ, God has acted outside of yours and mine willingness and our ability to keep the terms of the covenant. We, friends, and don't, don't leave here without thinking about this more later on this afternoon, we deserve the slaughter at the brook of Kishon. But instead, Jesus took our place. The power of God and the justice of God in one place on him. And friends, that is grace and that is changes you. And it's the only thing that'll move our hearts to say, you are God. The only question for us this morning as we take that in is how long will you, how long will I limp and waver between two masters, whatever that might be? How long will you look at the power of the cross for you and his grace and his mercy and still serve and go after other gods as if they are more beautiful, as if they are more believable than what we are about to partake of in this meal?
which is Jesus Christ. With the love of God that is willing to act outside of your own disobedience this morning, outside of your own willingness, outside of your own sin, so that you could experience forgiveness, so that you could experience love, cause you to see him as more beautiful and believable than anything else that would bid for your heart's affection, that we may follow him as he has called us to. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, surely this is grace to persevere for wherever we find ourselves this morning. We don't deserve this. Israel doesn't deserve this, and that's, that's the point. Would we lay down our idols? Would we bring them to your altar? Would we repent? Would we be strengthened and renewed in the reality that you are the one true God? And, 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 and if nothing else, it is grace that signifies that. It is grace that tells our hearts that you are the one true God. No other God does this. No other God offers grace like this or at all. May that be strength for us this morning. We thank you for this text. We thank you for this account. We thank you for the ways that even we do not understand the ways that you continue to pursue your people when your people don't pursue you. We say thank you. Come meet with us now as we come to your table and are reminded and our faith strengthened just of what that love is and that commitment looks like. And that is your son, Jesus, who has, been, who has died for us and been resurrected to new life, that we too might be resurrected to new life. We pray this in his name alone. Amen.